The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born in Kensington, London in late July of 1866. She died 77 years later in Lancashire, in northwest England, in the Lake District she had come to love. That journey from the city to the country is a good metaphor for her life as she shed her wealthy Victorian childhood and found a home in her beloved natural world. But she was not naive. She combined a shrewd business sense with a meticulous pride in her work that can only be satisfied by having financial and artistic control. Her name was Beatrix Potter, and we know her as a great author and illustrator of children's works, including the characters she created, like Jeremy Fisher, Jemima Puddleduck, Mrs. Tiggywinkle, and, of course, Peter Rabbit. But she was more than that. She was also an entrepreneur, a pioneer in the world of business, and a respected scientist. Who was Beatrix Potter? What kind of childhood did she have? How did she get started as a children's author? What made her work so special? How did she navigate her way through the publishing world as an independent-minded woman in the late 19th and early 20th century? Was she happy? Was she fulfilled? We'll look at the world of Beatrix Potter today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are at another milestone. 251. In a way, it feels like episode one. A new 250 to do. Maybe that should do it. Maybe we should just go to 500 and stop there. That would still be a few years away, I guess. We'll see. A lot can happen between now and then. The last episode was a big one. It felt monumental. A big round number. And the episode itself... There was a heaviness to it, a weight, and out of heaviness comes rebirth, sometimes. I heard Steve Martin say that when he was inventing his stage persona, you know, the guy with the arrow through his head and the balloon animals and the banjo and all that, it was during Watergate, right in the final years of the Vietnam War, and he said everything was so heavy, and he thought, the world is going to be ready for silly. So that's what he did. And by the time the world was ready for silly... He was right there. Well, I'm not planning to be silly, but I am looking forward to today's show, which is about Peter Rabbit, which lifts my heart. I had a Peter Rabbit plate and mugs when I was a kid, and I still think of my parents' house and their kitchen when I see an illustration of Peter Rabbit. Peter Rabbit's got some darkness, too, which parents always try to shield their children from, sometimes with good reason, and sometimes it's okay to let children explore that side of life, too that side of existence, everyone has to grow. In Beatrix Potter's case, it's the reminder that there is such a thing as a food chain in the natural world, and the animal world has predators, including the predator known as man. I mean, I can remember being shocked by the story. There's this feeling you have when you're a kid, and you hear Grimm's fairy tales or Snow White. Well, wait, let me back up. Let me say this first. There's a feeling you have when you're an adult, and you see something that you remember as a kid, and you think, what? What? That's in there? (laughs) They let me watch that? (laughs) Like you watch a movie from the 80s with your kids today, 
and you forgot all about the random nude shower scene or the ugly stereotypes or the gay bashing jokes or you read a Grimm's fairy tale and it's so dark with such a violent ending and you think, wow, I had this book. I can't believe they gave this stuff to kids. But there's also a feeling you get sometimes when you are a kid. Let's say you're five or six or so, and you kind of know things. You kind of live in this very safe world. Like my kids would start to get it, that the hero always wins in their stories. If there's a sports team in the Disney movie, they win in the end. And when that didn't happen in some movie, they would get it. They would see the difference. Whoa, what's going on here? That's what I mean. It's not just an adult looking back and saying, this was way more mature than I thought. I can't believe they gave this to me. It's a kid recognizing that at the time. Whoa, this one's different. They screwed this up. They went too far. This isn't how these stories are supposed to be. And I can remember having that feeling at a very young age. You see Beatrix Potter, and I had a record too. Not just the mugs and the plates, but a record to listen to the story of Peter Rabbit. And Beatrix Potter comes delivered with that seal of parent approval. That patina of mom saying, this is okay. I could tell when something was new to my mom. A cartoon, maybe, or the Hardy Boys TV show was new. She had to check that out. Judy Bloom books were new. They were cutting edge. My mom had to dig in, read it for herself, and she approved it, but only after some scrutiny. But I could tell when it was old, too, old and beloved, time-tested. Winnie the Pooh was like that. Peter Rabbit was like that. Snow White where mom remembered it from her childhood, or it was considered a classic, and she had no reservations whatsoever. Ah, yes, this is the good stuff. This is the quality children's entertainment. And so I'm hearing the story of Peter Rabbit on my record, and it's anthropomorphized, meaning the animals act like human beings, which is fine. A lot of children's books work that way. Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Uncle Wiggly. I was very familiar with that step. You almost expect it. And the mother of these four rabbits tells them, these little rabbit children, oh, go play outside. That's fine. Roam around. And you think, oh, here we go. Four rabbits on a farm. They'll probably go eat some carrots or something and tell some jokes. And maybe they're friends with some little farm boy, like Winnie the Pooh is friends with Christopher Robin. Well, no. The mother tells them to be careful to watch out for Mr. McGregor because the McGregors have baked their father into a pie. (laughs) Wow. Wow. We'll talk about that more later. But think about that. This is a book for five-year-olds, a bedtime story. Watch out, little bunnies. The farmer and his wife have baked your father into a pie. Don't forget about that. Even as a little kid, I thought, what? What is going on here? Grown-ups find this cute and amusing A good bedtime? Do they know this is in here, baked in a pie and eaten? Now run along and don't get into mischief. (laughs) I'm thinking, run along? Mischief? (laughs) These are killers out there. And back then, my parents would say to me, run along. Come back when the streetlights come on. Run along. Go, Go ahead, run along around town. Don't get baked into a pie and eaten. 
My mom actually had a whistle. She would step onto our back porch, our back porch, which we weren't really wealthy enough to have an actual porch. It was a concrete step. She would step onto that step and blow the whistle, which you could hear all over the neighborhood. And we'd come running home. Meant lunch was ready. We'd come running back. She'd see us, glad, I suppose, that none of us had been baked into a pie, thank goodness, although this was Wisconsin, the home of the serial killer, so maybe I shouldn't even joke about that. But I don't want you to think that this is about how strangely violent Peter Rabbit is, because there's love in there, too, and humor, and just the beauty of the illustrations. The illustrations are designed to give you tension. It's a little-known, underappreciated aspect of Beatrix Potter's uh, illustrations, her style. Take a look next time at how Mr. McGregor is portrayed and how the rabbits are portrayed as they're trying to escape his clutches. That's good stuff. She knew what she was doing. That's my memory of... I don't have a memory of that as a kid. I probably intuited it. I didn't understand it the way I do now. My memory of the Peter Rabbit on my mugs is that it was a beautiful little story, and the rabbit seemed so real. And the verses or the little snippets of prose that they included on the mugs gave me something to read at breakfast. I, I was reading the backs of cereal boxes while I ate, or the newspaper with its sports section and Ann Lander's advice column. And I could also read the mugs with the Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. Once upon a time... It begins, there were four rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. And the ending, where Peter's mother puts him to bed with some chamomile tea to make him feel better. I think the other kids get to eat warm milk and blackberries or something. Blueberries, blackberries. Anyway, this episode is not going to be about me, and it's not going to be about the stories themselves. Instead, we're going to focus on Beatrix Potter, the woman, an amazing person, who lived an amazing literary life. So let's take a quick break, come back with some listener emails, and then hear all about the great Beatrix Potter. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure Every week, Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, here's one from Adi. Subject, just another fan email. Dear Jack, you have often mentioned that you record your episodes at 4 a.m. in the morning, hoping that people around the world will be listening to you. Here I am, an enthusiastic listener who has started looking forward to waking up at 3.45 every day to be able to go for a walk precisely at 4 a.m. while listening to your episodes until the sun rises. Your riveting episodes are the reason I do not skip this new newfound motivation to get up early, take an energetic and long walk as I learn something new every day. The intention to wake up was not to sync my timing with yours, but it gets extremely hot during the day here in India. Nonetheless, I'm still happy about this tiny coincidence. I am pursuing my PhD in English literature from the University of Delhi, and after having completed my bachelor's and master's degree in English lit, there is still much to learn. And that is exactly the realization that has hit home ever since I began listening to you. The number of books that I have not read far surpassed the ones I have, even though I have spent the last seven years of my life studying literature. So your podcast is filling in the gaps in my knowledge. Even if the episodes are about authors with whom I am familiar, there is inevitably some fact that I had not known previously. Likewise, the episodes that seem like an unknown territory often have something in them that I am vaguely acquainted with. In this way, your episodes seem highly interactive rather than simply a monologue because there is always an exchange of ideas, facts, and opinions. I find myself smiling when I am, una- when I am able to foresee what is coming and exclaim in awe when you bring up something completely new. <laughs> Let me take a break there. Wow, this is so flattering. Makes me want to subscribe to this podcast. Sounds like something I would like. Uh, Back to the email. In fact, as a student of literature, we often get constricted by the readings prescribed in the syllabi, and there is little motivation to pick authors that we wish to read at some uncertain date in the future. However, listening to you excites me enough to at least read their essays and short stories, if not full-length novels. You are renewing my interest in literature in a completely different, non-academic, but equally enriching way. Well, yes. Adi, that is my hope. There's room in the world for academic readings of literature. This is me now, Jack speaking. There's room in the world for academic readings of literature, but there's sort of a hole, I think. There's academia, which gets very specialized and very smart. And there are book reviews, which are immediate and often a little shallow. They can only really scratch the surface in the space they have for a book review. And then there's the kind of book I like, or the essay, which is more of a survey of the author, maybe a biography along with the works, and a feeling that the books matter. Matter to real people, not just academics. Not that academics aren't real people, but you know what I mean. They tell us about the world. These essays, they tell us about life. It's not following a particular theory. It takes the approach that really smart people wrote these things, and really smart people read them, have read them, are reading them today, and will read them in the future. And what are all those smart people getting out of this? But it's more than that, too. It's not just conveying information. It's like, why do we go to museums and look at paintings? Why do we fly to some remote corner of the earth to watch an eclipse? What happens when we listen to music? What happens to us? Why did people living in caves draw pictures on them? Why do we stare at the fire, or at a waterfall, or read novels? That's my goal here, to try to explore all of this writer by writer, book by book. Back to the email. 
I discovered your podcast only at the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdown in India when I had to come back to my hometown some five hours away from Delhi. Before the pandemic, I would spend all my day in the university library. Research students only have weekly lectures, and the public university libraries remain open 24-7. Wow. (laughs) Oh, that's incredible. But can imagine being separated from that, too. Dead five hours away. It was painful to be wrenched away, says Adi, from that routine. Coming back home made me lethargic and discouraged me from reading simply because a buzzing university campus, quiet library corridors, and interesting seminars were absent. Discovering your podcast has helped me discipline myself again. Your episodes invigorate me enough to start my morning with my readings and a steaming cup of chai. Oh, I miss India. The chai is so good and the curd... We call it yogurt, but it's a little different, I think. It's not the same stuff. Curd. Curd is so good. And the dal. Ugh. I need to go back to India. Back to the email. The first hour goes in researching the things you discuss, followed by my own reading and writing tasks enlisted for the day. This is awesome. (laughs) I love this. It's like I'm giving her a new syllabus, giving her some projects. Back when I was teaching... My favorite thing to do was to make the syllabus. That was my favorite, my favorite task by far. I would probably make my wife's syllabus for her if she asked me to, but it's probably her favorite part to do too, so she never has asked. The only thing she ever asked me to do once in a while is give her a book to read or a book to add on the syllabus. She'll have a little hole in there, ask me to supply the the book to round it out, which is fun. And she asked me sometimes to help with the final grades because she has all these complicated percentages and needs an algorithm to get the grades right. But then she always refuses my help in the end because I'm always rounding up grades. If if students are close, I always bump it up a little bit. And she thinks I'm too easy of a grader, which is true. One semester, I gave everyone in my class an A. They were all good. It was a creative writing class not easy to give anything less than an A if someone is trying their hardest. I was probably going a little too far. It's one of the reasons why they drove me out of the academy, I suspect. Okay, back to the email. I absolutely love all your episodes on the 19th century writers, be it Dickens, Hardy, George Eliot, or Tolstoy. I'm drawn to that period, too, like you are. In fact, I recently picked up an array of books from the preceding years, all of the works of Mary Wollstonecraft, William Godwin, Charlotte Smith, Elizabeth Inchbald, Fanny Burney, Anne Radcliffe, and Mary Hayes. I'm sure you have a long list pending already, but an episode or two on Godwin and Wollstonecraft would be amazing. That's a great idea, by the way. And, Adi says, being a post-colonial subject myself, I would love to hear more about contemporary writers from South Asia, especially women's voices. Did I say Asia? From South Asia. Especially women's voices, which is another great idea. I know you covered Indian epics in the early episodes, which were great, but given the recent proliferation of writers from the region dealing with themes of race, gender and sexuality, decolonization, displacement, and diaspora in their novels, there would be a substantial body of works to choose from. I totally agree. Concluding the email with a massive thank you. Looking forward to the new episodes. Sending my best wishes and sincere hopes that the show garners an even bigger community of listeners. I certainly have spread the word to all my friends. Apologies for making this so long. Best wishes, Adi. 
Aditi, she says. Aditi, thank you so much for this email. I love imagining you there five hours from your university, unfortunately. But hopefully, you'll be back soon if you're not already. India is such an amazing place, so full of life and richness and beauty and great literature, too. It's a great culture. My goodness. I love your suggestions, and we'll put them on the list. In the meantime, please stay safe and... I will think of you when I get up at 4 a.m. I thought of you today, actually, drinking your chai as I was drinking my coffee. I'm thinking that although we're in different time zones, in a way, I'm not alone. Subject, reading with my eyes closed. What up, Jack? My name is Nathan, and I am a longtime listener from way down in Valdosta, Georgia. I wanted to write you a quick note to thank you for your excellent podcast and to suggest a possible episode, which I believe might be a different take on the experience of experiencing great literature. Before I do that, let me explain that I am legally blind due to a relatively rare genetic condition called retinitis pigmentosa, RP. I was officially diagnosed at 18, and my vision has continued to deteriorate as it will until I have no functional vision left. This is because there is no treatment or cure for my particular disorder. As a kid and young adult, I basically read everything I could get my hands on. Classic novels, comic books, labels on consumer products, you get the picture. By the time I reached my late 30s a few years ago, it became increasingly difficult for me to see print clearly, much less enjoy one of my favorite pastimes. The curling up with a nice new book and a cup of coffee in the afternoon sun or under a late night lamp is no longer an option for me. My passion for reading has continued to thrive by way of audiobooks. That is where my suggestion for an episode comes in. I think it would be really interesting for you to do an episode dealing with the listening experience of reading. Though in many ways, of course, I wish I could have back visual acuity. I find the experience of listening to a really good narrator to have a charm all its own. It's strange, but my reading speed and focus have greatly increased as a result of my predicament. In fact, I am convinced that my comprehension and recall have been greatly aided as a result of this change. I know that audio of all types is a big part of many of your listeners' lives, and I think a discussion of the spoken-slash-heard word would be a great addition to your excellent show, and even occur to me, it even occurs to me that you might be interested in this as a way to explore the history of oral storytelling in many cultures. On a related note, thank you so much for the many hours of enjoyment your podcast has provided to me and so many others. You have provided a network of common appreciation and interest for so many people with yourself as the hub. To extend the metaphor, I am just happy to be one of your spokes. Though, I hope that I can one day enjoy cracking open a new book, enjoying literature in that more traditional way. I do believe there is an advantage for all of us in learning to listen. Please feel free to use this for the show if you would like, and I am sorry for any confusing typos as I use the speech-to-voice function to facilitate most of my correspondence. Peace and love, Nathan. P.S. Tell Mike I totally read Infinite Jest just to hear his mind commentary on it, so he needs to get on that episode. I am tackling Magic Mountain now. I think he may have mind control over me. P.P.S. I would also like to add another vote for Cormac McCarthy. It will be okay. We can all face the void together. Ha ha. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for the email. This is great. It's a great email. I found it inspiring. 
and I think your idea is great. I'm reminded of a couple of things by this email. One is that I was traveling once in Tibet, and I met a pair of French Canadians, Jean-Marie and Rosemarie. He had been traveling for decades, taking photographs and writing little articles for different newspapers and magazines, and generally living on a few dollars a day, seeing the world. And they saw that I was a big reader. I was lugging around Proust, which no one wanted to trade. Everyone traded novels back then. This was way before Kindle or anything like that. So you had books in your backpack, and people would trade. They would post signs on bulletin boards and say, I've got Aspire's possession. What have you got? Oh, I've got Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. Okay, let's trade. I haven't read that. Let's trade. You had, once you'd finished the book, you were done. Otherwise, listeners will remember. That's why I read and reread Madame Bovary, which I think I talked about during the Madame Bovary episode. Nobody wanted Proust because I had volume five or volume six. Everyone said, well, I, I haven't read the first four. I said, oh, okay. So I lugged it around. Uh, and Jean-Marie and Rosa Marie saw these books I had, and Rosa Marie told me that her favorite author was James Michener. And she said that before they came out on this trip several years earlier, she insisted on buying a bunch of books. That's what she told Jean-Marie. Fill our house with books and I'll go with you. Because she knew they'd be coming home broke. They'd be returning with no money. And she would live the rest of her life with her books. That would be all she would have. It's not the same as what you've described. She filled her house with her books and was planning to fill her mind later. You filled your mind with books, knowing what was ahead of you. And now you've developed some new ways of reading. Which reminds me of another thing that happened in my life. I was in grad school in the MFA program. My wife was getting her PhD. And she had a classmate who was blind who was in the same program as her, also getting her PhD in English literature. And somehow I wound up volunteering, or maybe there was some grant money for this. I can't remember. There wasn't much money if there was. Maybe I did it for free. The job was to read the books, literature, literary criticism, into a tape recorder so the student could listen to them and keep up with their studies. A lot of this stuff wasn't available on audiobooks. When you're getting a PhD, you might be reading things that tens of people read. They're not big market materials. Something might be something really old or obscure, an essay in a journal maybe. So I would read these items into a tape recorder, and sometimes I would see her at a party or something, and she would say, oh, thanks for doing the readings, I would say, yeah, how have they been? Everything okay? And she always had the same comment. Read faster, please. Faster. She could listen and absorb faster than I could read aloud. And even when she sped up the playback, it wasn't fast enough. I heard how fast she was listening once, and I couldn't believe it. I could barely pick out the words. And for her, I wasn't fast. It wasn't fast enough. Nathan? I'm very glad to have you as a listener with your recall and memory and your passion for literature. You make some very good suggestions, and I will put them on the list. And Mike will be back soon. I forwarded your comment to him. <laughs> Always like reminding Mike of his shortcomings. The delay on the Infinite Jest episode. People are getting impatient. I'm just kidding. Mike is... Uh, Doing his best. He's working hard. He's got a lot going on. Oh, and I forgot to mention to Adi, 
that we have a good 19th century story coming up, I think, next week. And Mike will be here probably right after that. Okay. One more break, and then let's dive into the world of Beatrix Potter. Potters were a well-to-do London family. Rupert Potter, Beatrix's father, was a lawyer who was prosperous even before he inherited a large fortune in 1883 when Beatrix was in her teens. Beatrix's mother, Helen, was the daughter of a wealthy cotton merchant from Stalebridge, which is near Manchester. Beatrix had a privileged but not necessarily happy childhood. She was often ill and she was a bit lonely. She didn't have any siblings until she was almost six, and then her brother was soon sent off to school. Her companions were her nurses who cared for her and the governesses who taught her. She liked to draw and paint, and in this at least she was encouraged by both her parents, who were amateur artists. Her father liked to take photographs, too. On the weekends, they got out of the city, and they went to Beatrix's grandfather's house just outside London, and in the summers, they would rent a house first in Scotland and later in the Lake District. Beatrix became fascinated with the outdoors, with the natural world, and this love stayed with her all her life. She and her brother loved to watch the animals and birds outside. Beatrix drew them and painted them and recorded their habits. They also acquired... Beatrix and her brother, they acquired a variety of pets, mice, frogs, hedgehogs, and of course, rabbits. She had a rabbit named Peter Piper, whom she frequently sketched and took for walks on a leash. She also had a rabbit named Benjamin. She made sketches of him too, and after a family friend suggested that the sketches were quite good, she sold them to a publisher. She was so delighted with Benjamin, she decided to reward him by giving him some hemp seeds as a treat which she ended up regretting later. The consequence, she said, was that when I tried to draw him the next morning, he was intoxicated and wholly unmanageable. Beatrix's brother had a pair of pet bats at one point, and he went off to school and left them with Beatrix. They were hard to take care of, so she let one of them go and chloroformed the other, then stuffed it for her collection. You can see the pattern here. This is like seeing Da Vinci sketches in his notebook where he's drawing hands or smiles or water, and you can see how he's going to use them in his art. All those years observing nature, observing animals, watching them behave, loving them, all this went into her art, and it made it special. Beatrix used to let her mice go. They were wild mice. She'd let them run around, and then she'd shake a handkerchief, and they'd all come running back to fight the handkerchief, this invisible enemy, and she'd scoop them up again. This is not like you sometimes see with a child where they don't have any human friends, so they talk to their stuffed animals or their favorite cat or dog. There's an element to that. Her imagination was supplying half the interaction, but it's also more like the child who's on the farm, who's in the woods or in some other natural setting, who comes to know the creatures on their terms, 
as well as the human terms. This isn't animals as a substitute for a human. It's animals with habits and tendencies and characteristics that you can breathe a little more life into, give them a little more intelligence, and hear what they have to say. They're so real to Beatrix because she's studying them so closely that they only need a little boost in order to make them as sentient as a member of our species. Beatrix didn't get the education that her brother did. Later in life, she credited her success to this lack of education. Thank goodness my education was neglected, she said at one point. And another quote was, thank goodness I never, I was never sent to school. It would have rubbed off some of the originality. To be clear, she was being educated by her governesses, but she means that the rigors of a formal education might have rubbed off some of that originality, and instead, she lived in a kind of world where nature and the imagination were free to mix. Here's a quote. Quote, I remember I used to half-believe and wholly play with fairies when I was a child. What heaven can be more real than to retain the spirit world of childhood, tempered and balanced by knowledge and common sense? End quote. In another pas- passage, she said, quote, The place has changed now. And many familiar faces are gone, but the greatest change is myself. I was a child then. I had no idea what the world would be like. I wished to trust myself on the waters and the sea. Everything was romantic in my imagination. The woods were peopled by the mysterious good folk. The lords and ladies of the last century walked with me along the overgrown paths and picked the old-fashioned flowers among the box and rose hedges of the garden. End quote. For 16 years, inspired by Boswell and Pepys, she kept a diary. Boswell and Pepys were career men, men about town. Beatrix, on the other hand, was a young woman stuck in a Victorian household. And yet, she had much to say and record as well. She encrypted her journal in a secret code. Years after her death, it was decoded by one of her most ardent fans. And we see a lot of Beatrix's childhood and young adulthood here. Her mother was tough. Beatrix disappointed her often. Her mother wanted a quiet, obedient daughter who would get married and then come back home and look after her parents. Beatrix chafed at this. She was full of ideas. She wanted to memorize Shakespeare and learn about how they caught ducks in Egypt. She felt powerless in life, but in her journal she felt powerful. She had freedom. She had control, and she could express herself. Her code protected her from her mother who she suspected would read her journal. She wrote about long walks, the weather, and her beloved animals. Prince the chestnut horse, a pair of lizards named Toby and Judy, and a green frog, Punch, who had been on extensive journeys. When one of her favorite mice died, she wrote about her, quote, I think she was in many respects the sweetest animal I ever knew, end quote. In another place in her diary, she noted, quote, Sunday, January 27th, 1884. There was another story in the paper a week or so since. A gentleman had a favorite cat, whom he taught to sit at the dinner table, where it behaved very well. He was in the habit of putting any scraps he left onto the cat's plate. One day, Puss did not take his place punctually, but presently appeared with two mice, one of which it placed on its master's plate, the other on its own. End quote. Beatrix didn't just study animals. She hunted fossils in the Lake District, and she had an interest in photography. She had an interest in farming, too. She was also fascinated by mushrooms and fungi. And she plunged into the study of mycology, a word I only know because of her, the study of fungi. She wrote about this, too. In fact, 
Her research and her precise paintings, which she drew from nature, made her a respected mycologist. And she submitted a paper to the Linnaean Society of London called On the Germination of the Spores of Agaricinae. She wasn't allowed to read the paper to the society because women were not allowed to attend. But it was a triumph, nevertheless. She eventually gave up writing in her diary, maybe because she was older and didn't need the secrecy, and she had other outlets for her creativity by then. But the journals, the 16 years of journals, are revealing. They tell us about what it was like to live in Victorian England, at least for Beatrix. They took 13 years to decode, partly because the code itself took a while to crack, and partly because she also wrote in handwriting so small she herself couldn't read it by the end of her life. But let's move now to her writing. Oh wait, let's finish up her life first. She spent a long time before getting married. She was finally engaged at age 39, already past the point where she would lead the kind of life her mother had envisioned for her. In any way, her parents didn't approve of her choice. The son of her publisher, who, quote, worked in trade, end quote. And then her fiancé got sick and died of leukemia before they could be married, breaking her heart. She moved to the Lake District, a place she loved, and she became a sheep farmer. She married her lawyer in 1913 when she was 47. She said, I hold an old-fashioned notion that a happy marriage is the crown of a woman's life. Today, it's a little easier to see her in another light as the accomplished woman, the self-made woman, and to see that she probably needed both sides of that coin to be happy, both the freedom of spirit and the success, along with the desire for marriage that her parents had wanted for her, but also that people can want for themselves. We can hope to wear two crowns nowadays if we want. In any case, when she died in 1943 at age 77, she was wealthy. She left 14 farms and 4,000 acres of land in the Lake District to Britain's National Trust. Her house, called Hilltop, which she bought in 1905, was also bequeathed to the government, and they made it available available to the public in 1946. It's a 17th century farmhouse, and you can visit it and its gardens today. Okay, Beatrix as a writer and illustrator. Well, She was always a writer and illustrator, but how did she become a professional? It started with a letter, actually. Her last governess, Annie Moore, had children, and Beatrix would send them illustrated letters. In 1893, she sent one to young Noel Moore, who was sick. She wanted to cheer him up with a story. It included a rabbit named Peter. She was still in her 20s. A few years later, she sold a few illustrations of rabbits, and she remembered that little story, and she thought, well, that might make a good book. So she wrote to Noel and asked if he still had the letter, and if so, if she could borrow it. He did, and she did, and she made a story out of it, the story of Peter and his siblings, Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, and their life on the McGregor's farm. Peter was mischievous. He's told not to go into Mr. McGregor's garden, but he does eating as many vegetables as he can before Mr. McGregor spots him, and losing his blue jacket with its brass buttons and his shoes during his escape. He gets home, naked, sick to his stomach, and his mother puts him to bed with a dose of chamomile tea and a kiss on the forehead, one suspects. Meanwhile, Mr. McGregor uses Peter's jacket and shoes for a scarecrow. What did these illustrations have going for them? What did she have going for her? Why did she think this would sell? Well, 
She was already successful as an illustrator. Her scientific illustrations, the mushrooms and fungi, were good enough to be accepted by the scientific community. She was illustrating her favorite stories, too, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Cinderella. And she was kind of in demand as an illustrator, selling greeting cards and illustrations of frogs and other animals. Nevertheless, at least six publishers rejected the work of Peter Rabbit with its black-and-white illustrations. Undaunted, Beatrix decided to publish it herself, having 250 copies printed in 1902. The illustrations were in black and white. By 1903, another publisher picked it up. Oh, one of the people who got a copy of this black-and-white version was Arthur Conan Doyle, interestingly enough. By 1903, another publisher picked picked it up, persuading her to make the illustrations in color, which she... rejected at first, and then she saw that this was the way that publishing was headed. This was, and she could do it with her talent for watercolor. So she finally agreed. She extended the printing to, the publisher extended the printing to 28,000 copies. And today, that first little book she wrote has sold more than 40 million copies around the world. She wrote five other Peter Rabbit books eventually, and the others we've mentioned, Benjamin Bunny and Jemima Puddle Duck and so on. And altogether, the works of Beatrix Potter have sold over 150 million copies in 35 languages. The stories are vivid, they're graced with dry humor, and the prose is crisp and straightforward. Lines like these are etched in my brain. Quote, But Peter, who was very naughty, ran straight away to Mr. McGregor's garden and squeezed under the gate. First he ate some lettuces and some French beans, and then he ate some radishes. And then, feeling rather sick, he went to look for some parsley. End quote. (laughs) So simple. Such a beautiful little way of telling a story. Beatrix Potter is good company these children. You can see it in her letters, too, that she wrote to Noel and the other children. She's got a lot of empathy in her heart for both the animals and the children. I think the, and the illustrations are at least half the reason for the success. Potter infuses these characters with a kind of affectionate naturalism. They aren't exaggerated like cartoons. They really do look like the animals if they happen to be wearing bits of clothing. They eat carrots like rabbits eat carrots. The shape of their body and their face and their feet all look completely real, although their hands work a little better than actual rabbit paws do. They seem to have opposable thumbs. I heard a great line once about Ringo Starr's singing, where he's singing and Paul McCartney comes in on the high harmony and turns the straightforward tune carrying that Ringo does into something world class. And the line I read was, Ringo Ringo sings how you actually sound when you're singing to yourself in the shower, and Paul's voice is how you think you sound. <laughs> well, Beatrix Potter's naturalistic sketches might be how rabbits actually look, which she learned from watching them, and her children's books might be how a rabbit would like to think of itself if it spent a lot of time watching a human. Sure, I can eat a carrot. Don't I hold it up with one paw just like this human person does? Shouldn't I be wearing a little jacket, too? I mean, you all have clothes. Shouldn't I have some, too? That's the best way to think of Beatrix Potter's drawings, actually, or the best way I've found to think of them. Mickey Mouse is recognizable as a mouse, but he doesn't really look like a mouse. Bugs Bunny has whiskers and a tail and floppy ears, but he doesn't really look like a rabbit. His body is more like 
a tennis player's body than the body of a rabbit, Beatrix Potter's rabbits look like rabbits with a little boost. The intelligence that would say, hey, it's cold out, I'm not going to run around this farm naked, and you wouldn't either. Beatrix was a savvy marketer as well. She licensed Peter Rabbit. She created a Peter Rabbit doll herself, complete with the little blue coat with the brass buttons, and she took it down to the patent office and registered it. I've read that this was the first time this had ever happened, that Peter Rabbit is the oldest licensed literary character. She invented a Peter Rabbit board game and licensed tea sets and bedroom slippers and made other toys and games. She kept a tight control over the merchandise that she let go out under the Peter Rabbit brand, insisting that the drawings and representations be faithful to her illustrations and of a similar high quality. She was a practical person in spite of her wealthy childhood, and although she knew how much money she could make and did make, and was somewhat fierce in her protection of the output that came out under, I guess, what we could call the Beatrix Potter brand, she didn't lose sight of her basic task. She was in the tradition of Lewis Carroll, who was one generation ahead of her, and that was continued by A.A. Milne, the author of The House on Pooh Corner, who was one generation behind. And writers like J.K. Rowling and C.S. Lewis and Roald Dahl and Philip Pullman and Enid Blyton and many others, these were writers for children. If I have done anything, even a little, to help small children enjoy honest, simple pleasures, I have done a bit of good, she said. Hearing about her final 30 years, you might not know how wealthy she was. Not only was she born rich, two cotton families coming together, she earned her own fortune, thanks to her children's books. They were translated into dozens of languages and sold widely around the world. Then there was all the merchandise, and yet, here's a paragraph from one of her biographies. During her lifetime, Beatrix bought 15 farms and took a very active part in caring for them. Dressed in clogs, shawl, and an old tweed skirt, she helped with the haymaking, waded through mud to unblock drains, and searched the fells for lost sheep. Beatrix bred Herdwick, Herdwick sheep on her farms in the Lake District and said she was at her happiest when she was with her farm animals. She won a number of prizes for her sheep at local shows and became the first elected female president of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association in 1943. End quote. That's the Beatrix Potter I like to envision. Her vision faded in her older years and it was hard for her to illustrate her beloved Peter as well as she had when she was younger. In fact, she wrote a story where Peter has gotten old too. But I like the woman who has grown out of her somewhat unhappy childhood and found the freedom that she had always sought. The freedom, that is, from a cramped London life, privileged but burdened with expectations, and which she overcame through her own talent and hard work. She was free out there on the farms, working hard, taking care of animals, taking care of projects that arise, needs, things that happen because of weather or because animals wander off or because there are just endless things that need to be done. For some of us, farm life would be a kind of prison full of unending obligations and chores and unwelcome surprises, day after day after day of hard work dealing with things that must be dealt with. Beatrix didn't need to do any of that. By then she could have paid hired workers to take care of all of it, and she could have sat inside and watched it from afar. For some of us, being outside and having to care for the animals would be a kind of entrapment, bring about a trapped feeling. But for Beatrix Potter, 
that life out there was what she wanted because it's where she wanted to be. Out there, she was at home. Out there, she was free. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Help support the show at historyofliterature.com slash shop and patreon.com slash literature. We're the only ones with that URL. Literature was there for the taking. And so we took it. I don't feel bad about it at all. We're also a member of the Podglomerate Network. You can check them out and their shows at podglomerate.com. We'll be back soon with some Mike Palindrome for you and another dive into the world of Yorkshire. Can you guess why? I'll leave that out there to entice you. Here's a hint. Illicit love affairs. Another hint. On the moors. Oh boy, it's going to be fun. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.